This is the American Medical Association's COVID-19 Update Podcast. This is part of an ongoing series featuring critical insights from the physicians and healthcare professionals on the front lines of the pandemic. Hello, this is the American Medical Association's COVID-19 update. Today, we're discussing the benefits and challenges of, quote, vaccine passports and the ethical considerations that we'll need to address in the months ahead. I'm joined today by Dr. Yana Shaw, Professor of Pediatrics and Clinical Associate Professor of Public Health and Preventive Medicine at, at SUNY Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York. Lawrence Gostin, University Professor at Georgetown University in Washington, D.C. He is also Faculty Director of the O'Neill Institute for National and Global Health Law and Director of the World Health Organization Collaborating Center on National and Global Health Law. And Glenn Cohen, Harvard Law School Deputy Dean, Professor and Director of the Petrie Flom Center for Health Law Policy, Biotechnology and Bioethics, and he's calling in from Miami. I'm Todd Unger, AMA's Chief Experience Officer in Chicago. Vaccine passports, already kind of a controversial term. Uh, Mr. Gostin, can you talk first, uh, you know, what does a vaccine passport mean? You know, a lot of people think about those little white cards that they're getting when they get their, va their, their vaccines. Tell us more about it. Well, you know, really all it is is, is a simple concept that you have to show proof that you've been fully vaccinated in order to attend some uh, particular high-risk uh, uh, events, you know, whether it might be um, uh, a movie theater or a uh, or fly or something like that, you would have to show that you've got a proof of vaccination. Um, and that can be just your card or it can be a digital, in digital form on your pet, on your smartphone. We're starting to see, you know, evidence of the, the use of that kind of term, you know, not terminology, but that activity in different places all over the world. Are you seeing, where do you, what are you seeing? Well, you know, there are, uh, there are um, places around the world who've, who've uh, implemented it quite successfully. Israel's Green Pass, of course, is um, the most um, successful, and it seems to have really expedited a return of the Israeli population to a, a much more normal life than before. Um, uh, the, the European Union um, is considering it, um, as are other countries. In, in the United States, um, it, New York State is the only state that has a pilot Excelsior program, which is voluntary. But most of the action in the U.S. is probably, in at least the short and medium term, going to be in the private sector and particularly um, at you know, uh, employers, colleges, universities, and places like that. Mr. Cohn, we were talking before the segment about just the naming of this, which is probably you know, one of the problems at least. What was your perspective on that? We like to use the term digital health passes because I think it's the most uh, accurate. Passports, while there is an international dimension of this, we're also being using them to regulate within a country. And in some ways, I think licensing might be this better word in the idea that to drive a car, you have to show that you're not going to pose a danger to yourself or others. And when these are used properly, it's to make sure you're not going to pose a danger to yourself or others because of COVID-19. And that concept of the digital health pass uh, obviously addresses, you know, one of the concerns that we're already seeing about, you know, counterfeiting of these little low-tech white cards. Is that, the, is that the case? Yeah. So the United States is in some ways behind many of our peer countries in our ability to track vaccination, to be perfectly honest. 
Uh, we are currently giving these little white cards and you know, there's already been online auctions for blank ones and forgeries. And the hope would be with a better digital infrastructure, we'd be able to guard a little bit against that. But so far, the White House hasn't taken leadership on trying to build that infrastructure. So I think for the time being, those white cards are gonna act as at least a first order proof of vaccination. Yeah, I always wonder like whoever designed that probably never thought uh, they would eventually see so many uses of that uh, across the board. Um, Dr. Shaw, obviously there are some benefits of having digital health passes. Can you talk about what those would be? Of course, and uh, there are numerous benefits um, that digital health passes uh, provide to the vaccinees, you know, and, and to the community and society. They certainly offer health and economic benefits until we reach herd immunity. You know, the herd immunity is really important to help us to end pandemic as it provides an indirect protection for people who cannot be vaccinated, for example, for medical reasons or children who are too young to be vaccinated. And some people, you know, argue, well, we can get vaccine, uh, we can get infected just naturally and contribute to the herd immunity. Although that is true, the natural infection doesn't provide or contribute to the herd immunity consistently. So it's really important that we promote and incentivize uh, vaccination and um, digital health passes certainly will encourage people to get vaccinated. How about on the, uh, the flip side in terms of you know, certain scientific challenges that we would have that would come with the creation of a digital health pass. And, you know, how do we address that? Of course, yes. So there are several scientific challenges. For example, so far we have somewhat limited knowledge in terms of how well the vaccines will protect against transmission. Thankfully, you know, emerging research suggests that vaccination will reduce the risk of SARS-CoV-2 transmission to others, just as is seen with other vaccines. There are also different uh, vaccine effectiveness reported for different types of vaccine. And depending on which vaccine you receive, you know, you might be protected 65 to 90 percent against um, uh, severe COVID-19. And one of the commonly noted limitation of the digital health passes is the fact that the data on durability of immunity is limited to six months as of now. So although we don't have um, some of the information on length of protection past that period, you know, we can circumvent or address those limitations. For example, you know, we could just document the dates of vaccine series completions to determine expiration once longevity of vaccine protection is better defined. Medicine doesn't stand still, and at the AMA, neither do we. AMA members are physicians like you who are shaping the future of medicine. Become a member today and join the movement. Visit ama-assn.org slash movingmedicine. Yes, we still have, you know, a lot to learn. Um, Mr. Gostin, Mr. Cohen, you know, let's talk a little bit about the legal concerns around digital health passes. Who who has the legal authority to require vaccines? Basically, in in our JAMA article, we we separate um, the private sector from the public sector. Um, so, in the public sector, um, the public health powers traditionally reside in state and local governments. Um, not the federal government. So it would be a little bit of a stretch and it would probably require Congress to have a federal requirement. So we're not really anticipating that. And as Glenn said earlier, um, uh, 
President Biden has said that, that the federal government has no plans in this regard, not even to provide technical assistance, which I think um, they should provide scientific guidance and technical assistance, um, because in the past we've seen without federal guidance, you know, it's a hodgepodge. Um, so, uh, but, so states are one possibility. They have the power, undoubtedly, um, but are reluctant politically to do it. Um, as I said earlier, the big game in town is going to be in the private sector. Uh, we anticipate uh, more and more private sector um, businesses, particularly for employees, maybe also for customers, um, to trying to require proof of vaccination. We're all already seeing a lot of colleges and universities announcing um, uh, the need to prove you're vaccinated um, for the fall term. And that, you know, that's pretty typical. And for other things, I think, you know, meningitis, I'm, I'm thinking of one right off the top of my head for my my junior in college requirement. To yeah, absolutely. And, and also remember, all of us have some kind of vaccine passport, as it was. I, mm -hmm. I, I do prefer Glenn's term. Um, you know, when we go to school, um, you know, there has to be proof of vaccination of a, a number of childhood um, uh, against a number of childhood diseases. So, you know, this is not foreign to the United States. Mr. Cohen, let's talk a little bit more about, you know, uh, you know, private employers and this kind of responsibility uh, kind of falling to them, for lack of better words. What do you see as a kind of the trends here? Yes, Professor Gostin says this is going to be the main place where we're going to see the action, we think. And I think it's a little bit of a domino effect. Nobody wants to be the first mover. We saw this with the universities. Rutgers was the first mover, then a bunch more universities. And as more do it, more feel empowered to do it. There will be lawsuits. There's already been at least one lawsuit I'm aware of in New Mexico against an employer. Uh, the main argument they're offering, as you've said, MMR, these other vaccines, really well established that we can require this. But they say this one is different because it's under an emergency use authorization rather than a full approval. Uh, my own view is that that distinction is irrelevant for the power to impose these mandates. But if you do think it's relevant, even so, at least one of these vaccines, I'm hopeful, will move to full approval by September, maybe October. So that argument will go away. Do you see, you know, ethical concerns, uh, particularly around the, the, in the equity space, uh, as being an obstacle here, or something we at least need to seriously consider, Mr. Cohen? Yeah. So I want to emphasize the idea that these passports and mandates are the least restrictive alternative. Is the alternative is stay at your home or don't come to college or don't come to the employer at all. There's a way in which this is liberty enhancing for those who are willing to get vaccinated, but that depends on a view that everybody has access. In the United States, we're going to be in a position relatively soon where we'll have enough doses per arms, but two problems. The first has to do with racial minorities and other vulnerable populations. They may, given the history of the way in which race and medicine has interacted in this country, be much more reluctant. We may not be reaching them, so we need to make sure that access is real access, not theoretical access. The deeper problem is actually outside of the United States, where we have more than 70 countries where there have been no vaccinations whatsoever thus far. And barring our doors to those people from across the world because they happen to live somewhere else seems manifestly unfair and difficult. And that's why in our JAMA article we say any move to require these passports has to be married to the idea of making good in our commitments to share vaccines and build up manufacturing capacities elsewhere in the world. Mr. Gostin, any thoughts uh, from your end? 
Yeah, I mean, I just want to, you know, Professor Cohn really just said it all. I thought the, you know, the the important thing here is is that equity can't be an afterthought. Equity has to come front and center, and that's certainly globally where we're we're in an unconscionable level of inequality globally. But even in the United States, we have to make sure that everyone who wants a vaccine can get one and that we encourage and make it accessible, particularly to our vulnerable and minority populations. The last thing we want to do is give um, privilege, more privilege to the already privileged and, and leave other people behind. Indeed. Uh, Dr. Shaw, any final thoughts on how physicians uh, should be thinking about this particular issue? Yeah, I think it's important we remind physicians that the digital health passes could become an important vehicle for rapid turner, you know, return to commerce and recreation and travel and do so safely. We have summer coming up and people will be eager to travel and see their loved ones, but they have to be um, founded in the scientific and uh, best knowledge um, foundation to be successful. Uh, and as mentioned earlier, they have to, above all, be administered equitably to ensure that everyone has a fair chance to return to a normal life. And I think it's important we remember that digital health class passes allow vaccinated individuals to return to their pre-COVID lives and do so safely. And they also signal to the community that I am safe and you are safe around me. And we are all looking forward to that return. Uh, I want to thank you, uh, Dr. Shaw, Mr. Gostin, Mr. Cohen, for being here today and sharing your perspectives. Uh, we'll be back soon with another COVID-19 update. In the meantime, for resources on COVID-19, visit ama-assn.org slash COVID-19. Thanks for joining us. Please take care. This content was originally published as part of the AMA's COVID-19 daily video updates. Find the latest at ama-assn.org slash COVID update. Subscribe to other great AMA podcasts available wherever you listen to yours or visit ama-assn.org slash podcasts. Thank you for listening.